Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am so happy that you are with us, whether you are here in the building or whether you are worshiping with us online. Uh, it was good to see some faces come in the door this morning that we have not seen in a while. It's always good over the last 16 months to kind of begin to see the church family uh, be able to gather in the building to worship again together. At the exact same time, I understand and appreciate and are praying for those folks who need to continue to worship uh, from home. And uh, while we miss you here in the building, we totally understand. Um, but it is good to be together as a church family. As I said, I'm Alan. I'm uh, the senior pastor and one of the elders here. And if I've not had a chance to meet you, I'd love the opportunity after the service is over with. Maybe you can swing by and say howdy to me. Um, I know that uh, that. Zach mentioned a moment ago about the connection card. Those connection cards are really, really helpful for us so we can kind of get to know you better, get you some information about the church. And there are a couple of offering boxes in the back of the room where you can drop those a little bit later. We are walking through the New Testament as a church family this year. Uh, we're walking through reading a chapter a day, five days a week. We're not reading Matthew through Revelation exactly in order we're kind of bouncing around uh, but we are reading all of the new testament and uh, you'll see at the bottom of the worship guide if you happen to pick one up that this week we are going to be finishing up philippians we'll read philemon which is just one chapter and then we're going to jump into hebrews so next week um, that that'll be the reading plan that is put together if you don't have a reading guide you can like i said look at the bottom of the worship guide also we have uh, a year-long worship, uh, uh, sorry, reading plan that's available out in the hallway that you can pick up as well. Uh, this morning, though, we are starting a two-week series on the book of Philippians, and uh, it is being called A Gospel-Worthy Living. Gospel-Worthy Living. What does it look like to live uh, a worthy life that is, uh, uh, is being lived out according to what the gospel teaches us? Before I jump into it, though, I wanted to kind of uh, mention something. It, it's exciting to me to think that three years ago, uh, last week, my family and I moved back to Texas. Like, we moved here, and I became pastor here at Living Hope, and it was exciting for lots of reasons, uh, because we love this church, because we love this city, and because we love this state. Uh, my wife and I, Ashley, uh, were raised, born and raised here in Texas, and uh, then uh, after college, the first job we both took individually took us out of the state. And for 20 plus years, we had not lived back in the state. We were ecstatic to be able to get back home. Uh, I've got a friend, his name is Andy Lynn. I went to seminary with him in, in Kansas City. And he moved to Kansas City to go to, to seminary. He stayed in Kansas. And when he, he's from Texas as well, he's from East Texas, he, he went to get his driver's license. And I'll never forget that when he got his driver's license there in Missouri for the first time, as he had to cough over his Texas driver's license to get his Missouri license, he said, you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. We just know that we are proud of our state, right? Some of y'all are, and some of y'all are going, no, not really. I don't know. The point is this. If we're not careful, we focus on the wrong citizenship. As much as I love Texas, as much as I love the United States of America, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And Howard mentioned that a moment ago. Consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Philippians. We'll be looking in chapter 1, but I want to start in 
chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one in a chair under, underneath your chair or underneath the chair near you. Um, if you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. If you need to use the table of contents, do that. If you need to get your phone, whatever you need to, let's look at God's Word together. Paul wrote this, and here's what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, but I wanted to read that passage because it reminds us that our citizenship is first and foremost in the kingdom of God. If you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, it's not in your state or in your nation. It is in the kingdom of God. The reason I point that out as well is because the word citizenship that is found in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 is also found a similar word in Philippians chapter 1. So if you don't mind, turn with me to chapter 1. We'll read verses 27 through 30. It's the last paragraph in chapter 1. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about what it means to have gospel-worthy living, what he means by saying that we are kingdom citizens. Let's look at this together. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I want to kind of set up this book for a moment. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a, was a great um, uh, church planter and missionary and evangelist. He went all over the then known world sharing the gospel with those who had not yet heard the gospel. We have recorded in the book of Acts three different missionary journeys that he was a part of. And these aren't just a week-long vacation or a week-long endeavor to go paint some walls somewhere. Instead, this is planting churches and starting churches and discipling people and being gone for months and years at a time. And on his second journey, he was going, making the rounds when he felt like God was leading him to go over into, they didn't call it then, but we would now, to go over into Europe and to plant a church in Europe. And so the first place he shows up is in the city of Philippi, and he helps start the church in Philippi. After that second missionary journey, he goes on a third missionary journey, and then he gets arrested, and then he gets sent to Rome, and he's in Rome in prison when he writes this letter to the Philippians. And so whenever he says, whether I'm there with you or whether I'm absent, the reason he's saying that is because these are people he's done life with, he's done ministry with, he's helped plant this church, and he cares about these people. And now he's saying, guys, I want you to be living your life in such a way that it's shining the gospel all around you. You may be thinking, well, Alan, you said the word citizenship was here, and I, I didn't see it. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Why is why the focus on being a citizen? Go back to verse 27. The beginning of verse 27 says this, only let your manner of life be worthy, I think, oh, 
No, I went out for a second, but came back. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we took this title of this series, Gospel Worthy Living, from that verse. But what I also want you to see is I'm reading out of the ESV, but if you are looking at the ESV or another translation, you may see a footnote. In fact, at the bottom of, at the bottom, sorry, a lot of popping going on here. Uh, at the bottom of my, my footnotes in my Bible, on only let your manner of life be worthy, it says that the Greek actually says only behave as citizens worthy. You see, the word in the Greek for manner is actually based on the word for citizen. citizen. The word in Greek for city is polis, P-O-L-I-S. And the word for manner of living here is built off of that word. And so he's saying that we are to be living in a way that our citizenship is being reflected. And that citizenship is found in the kingdom of God. All throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is going to flesh out this first phrase is found in verse 27. In verse 27, we have the first imperative of the letter of the Philippians to live in this manner. And then he's going to unpack it, and there I use that word, he's going to flesh out what does it mean to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel as he walks through all of the rest of this letter. It's interesting that, that the phrase begins with the word only. You're like, what is the word only there for? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word only here indicates that this is a major thrust for the whole section and the whole letter. It's almost as if he's saying, above all, alone, if you do anything at all, do this one thing. You see, if we live our lives in a way that is reflective of the gospel, if we live a life that's a, a citizenship that's worthy of the gospel, then the rest of the details will begin to work themselves out. So Paul says, the beginning point of everything is to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So if you've got your sermon notes, you'll see that I have one main point at the top, which is the major thrust or the thesis of the whole uh, letter. And then there are three sub-points underneath that. So you'll see the first one says, we are to live as citizens of God's kingdom. That's the command that Paul gives to us. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and your life and my life should reflect that truth. That the biggest flag we should carry is the flag for the kingdom of God, that that's where our focus needs to be. But if we just stopped there and said, hey, live a life that's worthy of the gospel, live a life that is up to par with being a kingdom citizen, then how in the world are we to do that? It seems a bit vague, like how can we put handles on what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And so there are three sub-points that Paul lays out. The first one there on your note says this, always upholding the gospel as our standard. If we're going to be kingdom citizens, then we have to have a standard by which everything else is based. 
where all of our decisions are made, where we can identify, am I living up to what it means to be a kingdom citizen? And the starting point must be that we have to uphold the gospel as our standard of life. Our lives should be lived in such a way that they are worthy of the gospel. Let's think of um, for a moment about what the word worthy means if something is worthy then what we're saying is that it's living up it's fitting the weight and worth of its standard of reference so the only way that my money is worth something is because back in the day there was a gold standard that said it was worth something now I don't really know what that standard is but it says it's worth something because the government says it's worth something but if I were to get a piece of paper and I was to draw on there, in God we trust, and I was to draw George Washington and I was to put money on there and hand it to you, would you uh, be able to go spend that money at the store? Absolutely not, because it has no worth whatsoever. But to live a life worthy of something means that it's got to be living up to the standard of reference that's put in place. And the standard of reference that's put in place for our lives is the gospel. Our lives are to reflect the great value and the great worth of the gospel. I want us to think about what does that mean? What does it mean to live worthily of the gospel? First of all, think of this. The gospel is costly. What is the gospel's cost? The life of Jesus Christ. What is the good news? What is the gospel? The gospel is this, that God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. And so for us to preach the gospel means we look back on the fact that Jesus died for our sins, the son of God. This is not something that we should take lightly. So if we're living a life that's worthy of the gospel, then that means we need to take with seriousness how we live our lives in such a way that we are willing to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. All too often, we are focused on living life however we want to, and we don't want to sacrifice anything. And yet, what does Jesus tell us? He says that if we want to follow him, then we have to Take up our cross and follow him. So, to live a life worthy of the gospel means that we acknowledge that the gospel is costly and we must be willing to give our life for the gospel. Another aspect of living life worthy of the gospel is to realize that the gospel must be our standard of living. I've already mentioned this fact a moment ago. The gospel must be our standard of living. In other words, are we willing and able and choosing to live out the truth of the gospel in every area of our life. If we're not careful, we can all acknowledge, which is a good thing, that Jesus saves us through the gospel and we make the gospel only about what happens at the point of conversion when we trust in Jesus for salvation and we forget that the gospel is also what sustains us as we live out the rest of our lives on a daily basis. See, the gospel not only has implication for conversion, but gospel also has uh, implications for ongoing sanctification process of becoming more and more like Jesus. So the gospel must be our standard of living. And then another aspect of the, the, the living life worthy of the gospel is to acknowledge that the gospel is above all. 
The gospel is above everything. So my question is, will you champion the gospel even above your own desires? All too often, again, we make life about what we want to do when in reality, the gospel should inform every single decision that we make. We're to live this kind of life, worthy of the gospel in all circumstances. Look at 27, the middle of 27. He says that we're to let this manner of life be worthy of the gospel when? So that whether I come and see you or if I'm absent, I'll find you living out the gospel. So the truth of the matter is this. That at all times in our lives, whether others are watching us or not, we are to be living out and upholding the gospel at all times. So, the premise that is laid out to begin with is that the standard for our living as citizens of the kingdom must always be the gospel. What's another way? that we are able to live as kingdom citizens. The second thing says fighting together for the faith of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 27. He's wanting to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear this aspect of the unity that the church is to have? He uses one spirit, one mind, and striving side by side. It's obvious that what Paul is calling for is that the church is to have unity in the Holy Spirit, and he enables us to have unity. Whenever it says one in spirit, I believe what Paul is saying is not just the spirit or attitude of the church, but he's saying one in the spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live a united Life, so that we as a church body, we as a church family can fight together for the faith of the gospel. I, I want us to focus for just a second to be able to understand this a little bit better. I, I don't know if you've lived in different parts of the country. I don't know if you've had different conversations with different people, but have you ever heard the different ways that a person can say the plural for the word you, Y-O-U? Have you heard all the different ways to say plural for you? There's use. There's you skies, there's you ins, there's you all, there's all kinds of way to say it, but those of us from Texas knows that there's really only one way to say the plural for you, and that is y'all, right? Okay, maybe not, y'all look half asleep, but there are lots of ways to use the plural for you. But whenever you open your Bible, you see the word you, it doesn't use y'all. It doesn't use you guys, thankfully. It doesn't do any of that. Instead, it always says you, right? Everywhere in the Bible, when you see the word you, it might be singular, it might be plural. And because of our Western frame of thinking, oftentimes when we see the word you in the Bible, we think it's the singular. It doesn't say y'all. It must be the singular, but the reality is, most times, whenever we see the word you in the Bible, it is plural. There's lots of ways you can find out if it's plural or singular. The best way is to get you a, a, a Greek lexicon or a Greek, um, um, oh my goodness, I can't say the right thing. Anyway, Greek uh, New Testament, and be able to use some study tools that will show you is this plural or singular. I say all that to say this. Whenever you read in this text, 
the word you, including only let your manner of life be worthy. Whenever it says, um, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, those yous are all plural. Now what Paul is calling the church to do, he's not just calling individual Christians. Yes, we as individuals should do this, but we can't do this unless we're doing it corporately together. He's calling the church together to fight together for the faith of the gospel. You see, the Christian life is meant to be lived in community, not all alone. We see it over and over again. And in this text, it says, stand firm, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. This is a fight. This Christian life is a fight together with other Christians. We are not to be Lone Ranger Christians. 77 years ago, first week of June, do you know what took place? Are you aware of a thing called D-Day? I'm blown away when I think about what took place on D-Day. I I have utmost respect for the men that carried out what took place on that day. Whenever I watch something like Saving Private Ryan, I am moved to tears, and I don't know how those guys did it, but I'm thankful for them. And the reason I say all that is because whenever I see this phrase in the scripture that says we are as a church body to be striving side by side, I think of images from D-Day where those soldiers didn't just hop out of the boat and do their own thing. No, they went together up on the beaches side by side working together for a common cause and we are benefiting from that. Uh, is that me preaching in the background? Hey, it's so good. I'll say it again. Say it again, brother. Say it again. <laughs> At first, I was like, that's me. And then I thought there was like a ruckus out in the hallway. I was like, Jacob, go take care of the ruckus. And then I realized it was me. So sorry. I'm hearing voices in my head. Um, anyway, sorry. Striving together side by side. As Christians... We should be like those men at Normandy that work together for a common cause instead of all out there doing our own thing or instead of turning the weapons on each other and shooting at each other. I think it's important for us to see that that Paul, that God is calling us through the words of Paul to fight together side by side, not to take on more territory or win a military campaign but instead to advance the gospel it's our job to work together side by side to share the gospel with others around us the gospel is our standard it's our reference point for unity the only way that we can be unified is if we have a common cause and the church should have a common cause and that is for the gospel of jesus christ and therefore we experience unity through that but all too often the church is not focused on the gospel when i say the church i'm not necessarily just talking about living hope i'm talking about the church uh, specifically here in the united states that i'm aware of all too often we get our focus on other things that may be important 
but they're not of utmost importance. It's not the gospel that we focus on at times, and therefore we lack unity. All too often we begin to think about my culture, or my preferences, or my politics, and we begin to get distracted by these things that matter, but they're not the most important thing. Paul says, strive together side by side for the sake of the gospel. Don't allow distractions to come in the way. All too often, Christians take our eyes off the gospel and we begin to fight with others on these kind of matters. I have a few questions for us to consider. What if we turned the tide and truly experienced unity by focusing on the gospel? What if we began with the gospel before we ever engaged with these other topics that are important? But what if the starting point was the gospel instead of the topics? What if the gospel became the magnifying glass through which we saw everything instead of starting with everything else and trying to work our way back to the gospel? So I'll use one. It's kind of a, uh, uh, um, a hot topic, if you will, right now. And that is the issue of justice. What is justice? How do we strive to experience justice within our nation? among different ethnic groups, among different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, among different geographical regions. What are we going to do as far as justice as a result from those from that side of the track and those from this side of the track? Those things matter, but if we start with those things, we'll never really get to the gospel. Start with the gospel. Let that inform how we interact with others and seek justice because the only justice that really matters is a gospel-centered biblically driven justice so let's start there but let's not just say let's focus on the gospel and forget the justice let's start with the gospel and get to the justice part that matters Does that make sense where do we start we start with the gospel i think all too often let's just stay on the topic of justice for a minute all too often people from both extremes start with the justice part and never really see is it or is it not a gospel issue if we would use the gospel as our magnifying lens through which we looked at everything how i vote how i interact with my neighbors how i respond on social media how i in interact with the 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 neighbor at the at the at the mailbox all of these things if i start with the gospel that's what matters. What if we stood together on the gospel? What if we stood together for the gospel instead of fighting over these other things? You see, Jesus is calling us as his people to go out and make disciples of all peoples with the gospel, and we must focus on that. And when we do, then we can stand firm together. So let's keep moving. What else does it look like? to be citizens of God's kingdom. The last point is this, remaining unintimidated by opposition. That's the last way that Paul spells out in this uh, paragraph how we can live the gospel-centered life. Look at verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul says that as we strive together, that we're gonna face opposition from other people, 
I mean, he uses that terminology, right? When he says striving together, fighting for the gospel, there's this idea that opposition is going to come our way. It's just a natural given. And yet Paul says that in the face of opposition, we should not have fear. We should not be intimidated. We should keep pressing on in unity as a church body. Remember what I said at the beginning? Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Paul was in prison. Paul was in chains. He was in chains and he had done nothing wrong and yet he kept pressing forward with the gospel. Paul did not allow the chains to intimidate him. Instead, he preached the gospel all the more. Look back at the beginning of chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, he, he talks about um, how he's sharing the gospel um, and... Um, I should have looked at this beforehand. It would have been helpful, wouldn't it have? It says in verse uh, 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that I am sharing the gospel with all those around me. You can read in other places where Paul writes and says that in his imprisonment, everyone that was a part of the imperial guard had heard the gospel. Paul remained undeterred by the opposition that came his way. And Paul says that we as well should not be intimidated by opposition when it comes our way. He says just as he faced opposition, they would face opposition. Just as he faced persecution, the Philippians would face persecution. Just as he faced those issues, we as Americans will face that as well. We may or may not experience the persecution that Paul and the early church faced, but we will face opposition. But here's the deal. God always promises to be with his people in the face of opposition. Here's what it says in the rest of 29. He says that in the face of opposition, don't be frightened because this is a clear sign to them, those who are opposing you, of their destruction, but of, our, of your salvation and that from God. All throughout scripture, God promises to be with his people whenever they face opposition, that he will uphold them, he will strengthen them, he will encourage them, he will help them to press onward and that enemies will be defeated. It's all over the, the scripture, but specifically I wanted us to look real quickly at Exodus chapter 14. You might even just jot it down uh, on your sermon notes there. But Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, I want to read to you. I want to set it up first. Uh, Moses has helped uh, through the work of God to deliver the people of Israel from bondage or slavery in Egypt. And they're headed to the promised land. And they're trying to get away from the Egyptian army. And here they are at the Red Sea. What are they going to do? The Red Sea's in the way. The Egyptians are breathing down their necks. What are they going to do? And here's what we see in Exodus chapter 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He's the one bringing salvation. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The story goes on from there where, where God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites make it through. The Egyptians begin to follow them, and the sea comes crashing down, and everything that we just read in this passage comes true because God fights for us. And so whenever we face opposition... 
It may or may not come out exactly like it did with the Egyptians. There are times that people are persecuted and martyred and killed for their faith. They're not rescued like it seems to say here, but the reality is that God is with them in the midst of that martyrdom, and he is there on the other side in heaven receiving those martyrs when they come into his presence. The reality is this, that we don't have to fear opposition because God is with us. As I was studying this week, I looked up the word frightened in uh, verse 28 when he says to not be frightened. And, and, and I found something interesting. This word frightened actually carries with it the concept of a stampede of uncontrollable horses that are startled by a noise. I, I, my grandfather had a horse and one time she stepped on me. That was not a good thing. But I haven't been around horses a bunch, but I know that they can get easily spooked and startled. Well, in my house, I have my version of a horse, and his name is Cookie, and he is wild and crazy, and he acts tough and big and bad, but when I'm out walking him, he will literally jump and lunge and lurch and head off, and why does he do that? Because some kid across the, re the road just happened to yell, or because a leaf happened to blow past him, or a bag flew past him. He freaks out at every single thing. As Christians... If we're not careful, when opposition comes our way, we can be easily startled and, and, and give up all hope. When Paul reminds us there's no reason to be intimidated by opposition because God is with us. Opposition will come our way in the form of our culture, in the form of persecution, in the form of Satan trying to block what God is doing. But don't be intimidated or frightened by opposition. Don't be overwhelmed or, or, or uh, distracted by opposition. You see, kingdom citizens are to focus on the gospel, we're to live in unity, and we're not to be intimidated by Satan's attacks. That's wonderful. That's glorious. But the question is, how in the world am I supposed to live that out? I'm glad you asked. Look at the last statement at the bottom of my sermon notes. It says, by God's grace, we are empowered to live as citizens of God's kingdom. In verses 29 and verse 30, we see two gifts that God gives to us that enables us to be kingdom citizens. 29 and 30 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This word granted in verse 29 comes from the common Greek word for grace or gift or to rejoice. And so Paul says, by the Holy Spirit you have been granted, you have been given, you have been graced two things. Look at what those two things are. A twin gift, if you will, from the Holy Spirit. He says it's been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, that's the first one, but also suffer for his sake. So, like, oh, wait a minute. I like one of those gifts, but I don't like the other. The way we live as kingdom citizens is because the Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity to believe in him and also suffer for his sake. Believe in. It's the same word as faith. The Greek word is pistis, which is faith, believe, trust, place our life in God's hand. Trust in Jesus' salvation. 
our faith is actually a free gift given to us. We don't have faith, we are given faith. And this faith is not only faith for conversion, as I said earlier, but also for the sanctification process. It's an ongoing process of continuing to believe and have faith in Jesus, and yet those have been granted to us or given to us. The other gift that it says is not only that we would believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. The word suffer here is, is, is the word where we get the word passion. Have you ever heard of the passion of the Christ? Have you heard of passion week? You're like, what does that even mean? Well, the Greek word for that is suffer. Jesus suffered for our sake by being killed on a cross. And of course was raised three days later. Paul now is saying, just as, Paul, just as Jesus suffered for our sake, we now are called and gifted the ability to suffer for the gospel. Whenever we suffer for the gospel, it's not just a resignation to the fact that we're going to face suffering. Okay, Paul says it. I don't really want to do it, but I guess it's going to happen. No, he says he's a gift to us. In other words, we should see this as a privilege or an honor to suffer for the gospel. There's a theologian from way back in the day. Some of his things I like and some of his things I don't like. But I do want to quote this because this one particular quote I do like. Karl Barth is his name. Here's what Karl Barth said. The grace of being permitted to believe in Christ, which we just read about, is actually surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him. Of being permitted to walk the way of Christ with Christ himself to the perfection of fellowship with him. He's saying it's a great honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. I was talking with a friend this week, and he was telling me, uh, of persecution that takes place in a place that he is from. And he began to describe to me about how there was a nurse that was caring for a patient and simply said, it's going to be okay because Jesus can heal you. And because that nurse used the name Jesus, that nurse was taken out and beaten to a bloody pulp. I talked to another friend of mine who's lived in another country, and he shared with me about two different men. One man who was literally branded by a hot fork every single night by his father because his father was trying to get him to renounce Christianity. And another man who literally lost his hearing because he was slapped around so hard by the police because he trusted in Jesus Christ. And both of these men responded to my friend in such a way to say something along these lines, Jesus suffered so much for me, why can't I suffer a little for him? I'm not saying that we're all going to be branded by a fork tomorrow night for our faith in Jesus, but my question is, if it came to that, would we be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? According to Paul, God grants us the ability to do that. He graces us with that. I encourage all of us to live in this grace that God gives to us because it's only by his grace that we can live worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want to do two things real quick. 
one of which is I want you, maybe even have your worship guide handy. I, I would love to talk about why we do certain activities. Inside your worship guide, there's a bunch of announcements about activities that are going on. I want you to know that we don't just put these things down because it's fun. Hey, why not fill a calendar up with a bunch of stuff and let's just do random things. That'd be great. No, we put things down here because we believe that these empower us to live as kingdom citizens. It empowers us to strive together. Let me walk through a few of these things real quick. You may notice there at the top, it talks about youth apologetics. They have one more time where they're going to meet. They're going to meet this Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And when they meet together, they wrestle with current events. I think that's along the lines of striving together for the sake of the gospel, right? Look down at Kicks for Kids. I don't know if you've been aware of this uh, uh, program or not, but we have Kicks for Kids going on. It finishes up this month, so if you want to participate, be sure and drop off your shoes by the end of this month, which is this week, Thursday. Have them here or give online monetarily. There's ways to do it. There's information here. But I wanted to tell you briefly a little bit about it. Kicks for Kids is, is in memory of Jason Wright, who is the son of, of, of Eric and, uh, and Will. Uh, a little bit, I'm, I'm trying to throw Williams in there. Eric and Wendy. To, uh, that's what she gets for having two W's in her name, I guess. Sorry. Um, Eric and Wendy Williams, their son, uh, passed away three years ago. Loved shoes incredibly. He just, he loved shoes. And so we are, they are putting together an opportunity for us to be able to give shoes to kids who need them that are a part of the CSISD going through Chrissy's closet. How incredible would it be for you to be able to partner alongside of that, showing the love of Christ by providing shoes to school kids? All kinds of information. If you have questions, ask Eric or Wendy or see one of the flyers that's up here in the church. Then also, I wanted to share with you about Awana training. You may see that here. It's happening on Saturday, August the 7th. It's from 9.30 to 11 o'clock. That's a Saturday morning. Here's what's going on. This year, we're going to do Awana like we did this past year, where we're going to do it in homes. And why are we doing it in homes? We're doing it in homes so that, that our parents uh, can partner together with the church body in a way that we can love our kids and train them in the gospel uh, Awana is based on 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who cor correctly handles the word of truth. This is striving together for the sake of the gospel. You don't want to miss out on what's going on with Awana this year. And then I, I think I have one more thing here. You may see the missional opportunities that are listed. An opportunity to partner with the BSM and with ILT, specifically with Amanda Kruger, who is on staff there, in order to bless and minister to the international community that's right here in our city. We're looking for opportunities to display and share the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel. So I want you to see that we don't just put stuff on our calendar just because it feels good to put on the calendar. Instead, it fits the purpose of living out the gospel together. Now... I said I was finishing with two things. One was to kind of walk through some announcements and how they fit in with this. The second one is this, and I would encourage you to take out a pen and jot these down. How are you going to respond to all of these aspects that's in the outline of this sermon? The first one talks about having the gospel as our standard. So I want to encourage you first, number one, to make sure the gospel is your standard. Here are some ways you can make the gospel your standard. Study the Bible. Study the Bible. Spend time meditating on God's Word. 
Don't just study the Bible and meditate on God's Word and learn things, but as you do those things, then now apply them, live them out, obey the commands of Christ. That's what it means to study the Bible, not gain knowledge, but as you gain knowledge, live it out in your everyday life. There's several ways that we as a church body can do that together. In the fall, coming up very, very soon, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear about some discipleship classes that are going to be offered. There are D groups that are offered. Jump in one or the other or both. Jump in a discipleship class. Jump in a D group. Study the Word of God on your own and study the Word of God together in a group. Anytime you see yourself focused on, this is another aspect of living up to the gospel. Anytime you see yourself focused on something ahead of the gospel, repent of that and get back to the gospel. The second aspect First of all, I said the gospel must be our standard. The second one we talked about, not, uh, uh, the second one is let's fight together and not fight against one another. The way we can experience unity is by jumping in a hope group together. Hope groups are incredible ways to do life together with other believers uh, of Jesus Christ in our church body. And so the way that you can strive together best within the context of our church is to jump in a hope group, begin to serve with a ministry team here at our church. I also encourage you to assume uh, the best about others instead of assuming the worst. Instead of jumping uh, into an argument with someone, step into a conversation with someone. We should strive together for the sake of the gospel instead of fighting over things. The third area, not living in, fa in, in fear. The way we should not live in fear is by acknowledging that Satan is going to attack us, culture is going to be against us, but we're not fighting against culture, we're not fighting against the people of the culture, instead we're fighting for the sake of the gospel, and the way that we do that is not being intimidated or scared by the trouble around us, but instead standing for the gospel, and then trusting in his grace. Some of you need to trust in his grace for the first time this morning. There's never been a time in your life where you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Could it be that today is that day? Could it be that you say yes to Jesus, that you say yes to baptism that we're having in a couple of weeks? I know we covered a whole lot of territory. I know I preached it in uh, echo form a moment ago, and I know it may be a blur, but here is the deal. We need to be kingdom citizens by focusing on the gospel doing life together, trusting in God's grace to empower us to do it all. I want to lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for a reminder of what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens, what it looks like to live for the sake of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would guide our steps, that we would say yes to you, that we would say yes to the gospel, that instead of fighting over things, we would say yes to the gospel together with our church body. Father, I pray that you would empower us to share the gospel with those around us who need to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd be glorified in our lives, in the things that we do, in the things that we say. God, we thank you for an opportunity to come together as a church body today to worship you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.